0: For so long I carried the weight of my past Crippled by burdens like stones on my back I thought I had fallen too far from your grace But you came and showed me the way When I was a lost soul searching You were the ground beneath my feet When I was a blind man begging You were the eye so I could see When the smoke was rising up You were the air that I Hope you gave me something to believe. Now I'm a- this morning we know that he is all sufficient to meet every need that we have and because he is in this room we have everything we need we have healing and grace trust in Jesus just I fall apart you you're the one Who guides my heart Lord, I need you Runs deep. Your grace is more. Grace is found.
1: today is not just about God's goodness but the power that we have through prayer and coming before the Lord and asking him to do things that we're not capable of but we have that power to tap into in our heavenly father who cares for us deeply he told us from the moments that we were being made in our mother's womb that we were being formed in his image and that he cares us and knows us deeply he knows our inner workings and our thoughts and our burdens and he's there and he wants to walk with you through that and one of the greatest ways that we can fight the battles of this life and the storms and going through all of the things that just happened during the week and over the course of life is through prayer and through worship and worship is just lifting Jesus up above everything else and that is how we fight our battles will you sing this with us
0: That this is how I fight my battles We claim it today This is how I fight my battles Through worshipping you, Lord And this is how I fight my battles I'm not doing it alone And this is how I fight my battles Oh I know it may look like I'm surrounded I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And your goodness, Lord, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And this is how I find my battles. And this is how I find my battles. This is how I fight my battles with You, Lord. And this is how I fight my battles. Well, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by You. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by You. It may look like. i
1: Of kings and lord of lords asking him to do what we cannot so father come and move today in this place in a mighty way will you declare this right now that jesus the name
0: his is made for us away.
2: and I had a date night a few weeks ago. We went to the movie theater, dinner and a movie kind of date night. You know how those go. And um, we, we got to the movie theater. Uh, we were a little early. They were showing the previews and the you know st- stuff that they put up before the movie starts. And my wife decides uh, to go get some popcorn and stuff from the concession stand. She gets up and she goes, and I stay with the seats. And I'm, I'm not nearly as lazy as that just made me sound. I, it's... It's not that I'm like, oh, sweetheart, you go get the popcorn and the candy and the drinks and I'll guard the seats, because that's the really important thing, you know? It's not like that. She just decided she was going to go there, so I'm staying there, and, and I... There are these two adolescent boys in the, in the row in front of me that, that are talking, they're having this really deep existential conversation because the, there was a, a promo for, I don't know, some Marvel Comics movie or something coming up, some superhero movie coming up, and they, they hit on this really brilliant uh, topic, and the topic that they hit on was, what would be the worst superpower to have? Well, now that interests me. So now I'm listening to their conversation, right? So they're going back and forth and discussing the different kinds of things that would be the worst superpower to have, you know, the ability to do an infinite amount of homework, you know? And, and then they sort of took a weird turn and they sort of went into a direction of things that I just wouldn't feel comfortable repeating in any environment. Um, I mean, and by, and by the way, for whatever it's worth, I, I wasn't meaning to overhear everything that they said, but when you have the spiritual gift of eavesdropping, you, uh, you know... <laughs> It's sort of like a sacred calling. I mean, I've got to do what God's called me to do. So I'm listening to them talk. And I'm, but it really had taken sort of an unproductive turn. And so I sort of tuned them out. And I started thinking to myself about what would be the worst superpower. And there's all kinds of different candidates for that. It's kind of a fun idea to toss around in your mind. But this is what I came up with. I'm not sure whether this is the best answer. But I think it's a good answer that the worst superpower would be the one you don't know you have. Right? I mean, if you don't know you have it, then it's a completely useless superpower. I mean, that's part of the whole gig, right? If you watch the old Superman episodes, it's clear that not only does Superman know what his powers are, but they have to make sure you know what his powers are. And I'm, I, Because every single episode of the show, on the coming on of the show, they have to tell you what all his superpowers are. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He can leap tall buildings with a single bound. Just to make sure that you know what his superpowers are. But imagine a, a, a superhero who didn't know what their superpowers were. Well, that would be kind of useless, wouldn't it? And it would almost be counterproductive. What would be the point in having it if you didn't know that you had it? Well, here's what I wanna do in our time together today. In this last talk in the Clash of Dynasty series, I wanna talk to you about a superpower that everybody in this room has that you either don't know that you have or you don't use it very much because you don't think it's that important. Again, you either don't know you have it or you don't use it because you underestimate it. Well, that would be a struggle, right? Because if you have a superpower, you should use it, and you should understand how important it is. So we're going to talk about that. As a matter of fact, we've got some time in our time together, so I'm not just going to talk to you about what it is. We're, We're going to cover that. We're going to talk about what it is. We're also going to talk about why you have it. Every superpower has a purpose. We're going to talk about what is the purpose of this superpower. And then finally, we're going to talk about what are you supposed to do with it. Sound good? So that's what we're going to do. It's a superpower. You may not even realize that you have it. We're going to talk about what it is, why you have it, what you're going to do with it. But before we do that, we need to go to the Bible because we're in Clash of Dynasties, the Chronicles of Daniel. And if you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of Daniel chapter six. That's where we're going to camp out in our talk today. As a matter of fact, it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Um, how many of you have been around long enough that you grew up in Sunday school during the age of flannel graph? My, my hand would have to go up for that as well. All right, a lot of, so it's sort of like the flannel graph support group in here. Okay. Um, if, you, if you don't know what flannel graph is, you're probably better off, I guess. It, <laughs> high, high density fabric sticks to flannel. So what they would do Uh, When they were teaching you know, these little classes of Sunday school students, especially Sunday school classes where you had kids like me that were highly ADHD, was in order to keep their attention, you would have this big flannel board and you would have these little high-density fabric Bible characters and you would put them on the flannel. They would stick to the flannel and you would tell the Bible story. Well, my favorite day in Sunday school was when we would talk about Daniel in the lion's den. There's just something cool about that story. And the coolest part is when the teacher takes the little flannel Daniel and puts him down among all those lions in the lion's den, right? And then my teacher had this little little fab, little, uh, uh, little uh, string that she would tie the mouths of the lions shut to show how that Daniel wasn't harmed by the lions. And then she'd bring Daniel out and Daniel would tell everybody how he was in the lion's den and, and he made it through okay. And that was my favorite part. I loved that. I mean, that was a good day in Sunday school. And I still think maybe the best part of the story... And by the way, if you're not familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, it's important for you to know that Daniel got crossways with the government in this part of his life. He did something that was against the law. And as a result of doing something that was against the law, he was sentenced to a terrible, terrible punishment. He was going to be thrown to a den of hungry lions, which basically whenever they did that, people came back in pieces, right? So... Um, He got thrown into the den of lions, but the Bible says that God protected him there, that God actually shut the mouths of the lions so that when Daniel came out, he was in one piece. He was able to tell the story of how God had protected him. That's probably the best part of the story, but we're not going to focus on that part of the story. We're going to focus on the first part, and that's the part that when I was a kid, I used to think was kind of boring because I was waiting for the lion's part, but this is the part that we need to talk about in the day and age that we're living in because we need to know how to fight our battles. We need to know what to do when trouble comes for us and where we have to make a decision between our faith and staying on the right side of the powers that be, because I think that's coming for us at some point. So I just wanna take you to the Bible. This is Daniel chapter six, verse one. Darius the Mede, he's the king. He decides to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces and then he appoints a high officer to rule over each province. If you work for a large national corporation where there are districts, this is kind of what's happening. He's sort of dividing his kingdom into 120 districts and appointing a sort of a district manager over each of those districts. And then he also chooses Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. So now he's sort of setting up regional managers. Managers. You've got these three regional managers, Daniel's one of them, over the district managers who are managing these sort of independent field offices for the king. Daniel has two jobs as a regional manager. First is he's supposed to protect the king's interests, just like all the district managers. This is everybody's tasked with protecting the king's interests. But he has one other responsibility, and that is he's to supervise the, uh, the high officers. He's to, he's to supervise those district managers. And if you're a A manager or a supervisor or a teacher or a father or a mother you know that this is true that the more you supervise the less popular you are you know what I mean the more you look over somebody's shoulder the less you're everybody's pal the less you're everybody's buddy the more you inspect the work that people do the less they tend to want to be you know really close and have a great relationship with you it kind of can get a little contentious sometimes because you know, if, if somebody's constantly looking over your shoulder, it means you have to do the work. Daniel was the kind of person that if you worked for Daniel, you had to do the work. If you worked for Daniel, you, were, you had to do what you were supposed to do. That didn't always make him the most popular person. So the Bible says that Daniel soon proved himself so capable, uh, and more capable than the other administrators and high officers, because of his great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Well, now that was a huge scuttlebutt. Because now we're going from Daniel is managing a third of the king's affairs. And two-thirds of the king's supervisors don't have to worry about Daniel. They've heard about him. He's strict. He doesn't suffer fools gladly. He expects them to get the work done. And they've not had to worry about that because they're fortunate they don't have to work for this guy who's so demanding. But now... It's looking like he's gonna supervise everybody. And think about this, the other two regional managers now, potentially, I mean, he's never been a threat to them. They're in a lateral position. They don't have to worry about Daniel. Suddenly he's gonna be their boss and they're gonna to have to go into his office and say, yes, sir, Daniel, whatever you say, Daniel, that doesn't sit well with them. So the other administrators and high officers began searching for some faults in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. I mean, that's a kind of a big deal, right? No skeletons in his closet, no performance issues. He was, And by the way, these are the three things that every leader must have. It's a talk for another day, a sermon for another day. But if you want to be a successful leader, you have to have these three things. He was faithful, he was always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So the administrators and the, and the high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius, we're all in agreement. Now, by the way, let's just push pause here, because there's a couple things we should probably deal with. First of all, these guys had an agenda. They understood how deeply held Daniel's connection was with God. They understood how firmly Daniel was rooted in his relationship with God. So they understood if they were going to wreak havoc in his life, that was the point to go for. They had an agenda. And by the way, anytime somebody is set out to limit your ability to follow God and to live out your faith, there's always an agenda in the background. There's always somewhere in the background there's an agenda. And that's exactly what was happening here. They knew about his prayer life. It was a big deal to him. See, Daniel, three times a day... I'm not exactly sure why Daniel did this three times a day. The psalmist said that he prayed, David said he prayed morning, noon, and evening. Maybe Daniel was following suit with that. We don't know. But three times a day, he would go to his house. It was probably a palatial house. Daniel was so high up in in the government. He probably lived in a very nice home. He would go to his home. He would open his windows, the ones that faced towards the direction of Jerusalem, and he would pray to God. He would give God thanks and make his requests. And it was such an important thing to Daniel that these guys knew he would never compromise it. I mean, I'm gonna guess that Daniel would schedule his meetings around his prayer times. So he, he, you, you couldn't meet with Daniel during one of the times that he's regularly praying. He probably left meetings that were running long, probably excused himself. Hey guys, I gotta leave, the meeting's running long and you know I have, I have to go pray. It's important to me. I wanna make sure that I don't, I don't miss that part of my life. So these guys knew, if you wanna mess with Daniel, just mess with his prayer time. They knew that was where to get him. So they go into Darius and they say, look, we are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors. By the way, we're all in agreement. Think about what that would be like. Tomorrow, a group of people go into President Trump and they say, we are all in agreement. Democrats, Republicans, independents, senators, congressmen, mayors. Alderman, all of us, we've all come together, we've all decided that we agree on this. Now, that's not the kind of proposition you want to push back against, that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Well, they were making a pitch for loyalty here. They were saying, hey, king, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this country And there's a lot of people who, you know, pray to different gods and so forth. But we need to just, we need to get back to basics and make sure that people are loyal to you. Because we don't want any kind of uh, divisiveness in the kingdom. So for 30 days, if anybody wants to pray to anybody, they got to pray to you. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. I want you to think about what Daniel's prayer life must have been like. Because these guys knew 30 days was all they needed. It didn't have to be six months. They didn't have to say, King, nobody can pray to anybody but you for six months, because they knew that Daniel wouldn't be able to hold out for 30 days, and what they didn't know is that Daniel wouldn't have been able to hold out for one day. But they knew that if they asked Daniel to put his prayer life on hold for a month, it was going to be a no-go. What would it be like for you if somebody required you to put your prayer life on hold for a month? Some of us, our prayer life's been on hold for three months, and nobody ever put any pressure on us. But they're saying, we're going to put pressure on him to put his prayer life on hold for a month. And if he doesn't, he's going to get thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. The Medes and Persians had a system set up. So that once a law was enacted, you couldn't undo it. It was, it was permanent. It was indelible. Even the king himself could not amnesty someone who went afoul of the law. So King Darius signed the law. Now I want you to think about what, what your life is like if you're Daniel. You've been loyal to the king. You've been loyal to the kingdom. You've done everything that you can to be a trustworthy and faithful servant of the kingdom, even though you had been taken, originally you been taken prisoner into this kingdom, but you've done everything that you can to bring your A game every day. The only thing that you've ever required is the ability to follow your God. And now you find out that if you follow God the way that you've always followed him, that it's a death sentence. Here's my question. My question is, what would you do? Well, I mean, it's kind of a hypothetical question on the one side that we're sort of putting ourselves in Daniel's shoes. What would you do if you were in Daniel's shoes? I mean, that's partly it, but it's not just a hypothetical question because we are living in a day and age where Christianity is, I guess you could say it's tolerated, but only just. In certain circles, it's not even tolerated anymore. In a culture where we've supposedly become more and more tolerant, we become less and less tolerant of being a God follower. I remember being a kid in church, and an elderly pastor waving his hand over the room and saying the kids in this room, the young people in this room are likely going to live in an era where they'll have to make a choice between their job and following God. Even as a kid I thought that's, that's ridiculous, that's crazy and yet now I'm 38 and I'm, I'm still a young man and we're seeing it happen. People are having to choose between their faith and their job, their faith and a clinical license, their faith and the ability to finish their college program, their faith and continuing to run their business. And I I I tend to think, and I'm not trying to be an alarmist, and anybody who knows me personally knows that, that I'm the farthest thing from an alarmist, but I think that what we're seeing right now is the front edge of the storm, and I don't think it's going to suddenly turn on a dime and it's gonna get better. I think what we're gonna see is it's gonna continue to get worse. So it's not just an academic question. It's not just a hypothetical question. The question is, if you are threatened to choose between your faith and something else that is valuable to you, your job, your license, your education, My question is, what would you do? How would you handle it? Well, we know what Daniel did. I mean, he had a lot of choices, right? He could have gone to the king, could have tried to to figure out a a solution. He could have, and I think this is what I would have been tempted to do if I was Daniel. He could have gone home at at his regular prayer time. He could have shut his windows, shut his doors. I mean, he's living in a nice home. There's no doubt that he could have found privacy in the home that he was in and and privately pray and know that he's got his prayer life still going between him and God, but he doesn't have to worry about being caught and getting in trouble. I think that's what I would have been tempted to do. And yet when we get to Daniel chapter six, verse 10, the Bible says, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, so he knows exactly what's going on, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. When threatened against this faith, Daniel prayed. That's an interesting thing to do. He had a lot of choices, a lot of things he could have done to fight back against this unfair rule. And yet, when he was threatened, he prayed. He was giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. I'll tell you this. I don't know what the future holds. I, I, I hope that America... Has a revival, it comes back to God. I, I hold out hope for that. I really do think that, I really do think that there is potential in this country for amazing things to happen if we would get on our knees and go back to and, and, and go back to God, go back to our roots, because this is a country that was founded on Christian principles. But I'll tell you this: in the last two decades, I've seen our culture go so far, so fast away from God, my head is spinning, it's mind-boggling. So if trouble does come for me, and it might. Someday if trouble comes for me because of my faith, I hope it finds me on my knees. If trouble comes for me, I hope it finds me praying, not posting on social media. Can, can I set some of us free in the name of Jesus Christ from something right now? So We get on social media and somebody is so wrong, they're so wrong about God or they're so wrong about politics or they're so wrong about whatever, and we feel that God has somehow now from on high commissioned us with setting this person straight. Can I set you free in the name of Jesus from doing that? You're not gonna change their mind. You're not gonna change their opinion. You should just kind of own that, that they're gonna feel the way that you feel and you're gonna feel the way that you feel. But here's what I would recommend that you do. That person that you're tempted to respond back to that way, take their name and get on your knees and speak their name to the Father and say, As best I know, from what I know about you and from what I know about this world, this person is a little mixed up and they need your help. Would you please speak into their life? And oh, by the way, while I'm asking for help for them, I'm asking for help for me too because I recognize I may be just as mixed up as they are. Because if we don't start doing that, We're gonna waste all our time as a culture in online arguments and we should be spending that time on our knees. We should be spending time on our knees asking for our brothers and sisters who are not completely understanding situations and we should be praying for the fact that we don't completely understand situations. What America needs is a huge dose of humility on our knees that might actually change things. These guys find them asking for God's help he prayed. Of all the things that he could do, he prayed. What well, was the right call? I told you the end of the story, right? They throw him into the lion's den, but even the lions can't mess him up. They bring him back out. God protected him. It was the right thing to do, but why was it the right thing to do? There's a story of a big manufacturing plant, millions of dollars of product coming off the line all the time, all these pipes and conveyor belts and machines. And one day, the whole works just stops. The whole, some, something messes up the whole manufacturing plant. The whole thing comes to a screeching halt, and everybody is freaking out because they know that every second of missed time is dollars being hemorrhaged by that company. They quickly call in an expert, and this expert comes in, sizes up the situation, sees what all's going on, thinks he has a clue of what's, what's happening. He goes to this room where they have this massive panel with all these industrial buttons. Some of them are reset buttons and shutdown buttons and just massive... Hundreds of buttons in front of him. And he goes up about eight rows and 10 buttons over and he presses the button and immediately everything springs back to life. All the belts start going, all the machines start working again. And everybody was relieved and he said, all right, I think you guys are back up and running. That'll be $10,000, I'll send my bill. And the head of the plant said, $10,000? You you just pushed one button. And he's like, you know, you're right, you're right. Tell you what, I'll bill you a dollar For pushing that button and the guy says well it's very generous of you it sounds a lot sounds like a lot more reasonable thing he said but then I'm gonna bill you nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine dollars for knowing which button to push (laughs) see Daniel knew which which button to push it's just not the one that you and I would probably go to to go to our knees in the middle of a situation like that so we need to understand why it was the right button to push So in order to do that, I have to ask you a really important gut level question. We need to unscrew the halos and and put away the church answers. I really want you to think about this at a gut level. Here's the question. What are your honest thoughts about prayer? What are your honest thoughts about prayer? Because some of us have seen prayer used in some weird ways. For some of us, we were sort of taught prayer like a spiritual OCD kind of thing, right? That there were these prescribed prayers and you prayed it a certain number of times until you felt like you were right with God. In the psychology world, when we talk about OCD, we talk about checking behaviors. And what that's like is if you have to, you know, sort of push the refrigerator door five times to make sure that in your mind it's shut or you have to um, you know, go in and check something in your room four or five times to make sure that you turned this off or that you unplugged that or whatever. But what we know from psychological science is that the more we check something, the more anxious we feel, not the less anxious we feel. So some of us have been through a religious tradition where we've used... Prayer, like some sort of spiritual OCD checking thing where we pray over and over again until we hope that maybe we'll feel better, but we learned that that it made us feel more anxious and not less anxious. Some of us have watched prayer get used as a manipulation tactic. You ever be around somebody who's praying and they are supposedly talking to God, but you recognize that they're talking to somebody else in the room? Like you go to a small group and it's time now for that you're in a you know, young married small group and now it's time for everybody to have prayer time and this young lady prays for her husband. She says, dear Lord, I know my husband doesn't wanna be the jerk he's been lately. I know he could be all that you want him to be. I know he doesn't want to be lazy, and he doesn't want to leave me alone to do all the things around the house, and he doesn't want to be a, you know, a, he doesn't want to be struggling with, you know, uh, video games and all that stuff. And Lord, I just want you to crush him. I want you to break him down like the Marines break down a recruit. I want you to take him down to base metal and build him back up to the man that I thought I married. Right? And you're thinking, listen. There is no communication happening between God and this lady right now. It's all between this lady and her husband in the small group, and the husband's just doing this, you know. (laughs) Some of us have gotten accustomed to the fact that when people are praying, they're actually talking to other people in the room. They're not really talking to God. It gives us a bad impression of prayer. Some of us have seen prayer used as a a fraudulent tool. You turn on to the TV at 2 o'clock in the morning and hear the televangelist, you know, pray for me and send me $2,000 and whatever you pray for will come to pass, right? What's your honest opinion of prayer? You know what? The biblical picture of prayer is not that, it's not a ritual. And it should never be a manipulation tactic. This certainly should never be a way of perpetuating fraud. As a matter of fact, the biblical picture of prayer is that it is the superpower that you may not even know that you have. Or if you know that you have it, It may be that you've underestimated it and that you're not really using it. You say, now, Jonathan, that's a nice piece of branding. Prayer is the superpower. Maybe you didn't know that you had. But I'm not sure that's biblical. Well, I kind of am sure it's biblical. Let me show you. This is in the book of James chapter five. The Bible says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And biblical language scholars tell us this phrase has great power, it carries the meaning of laying hold of God's power. We have a couple of different uh, uh, Greek words here. One that really talks about laying hold or grasping and the other word that really relates to God's power. So it's basically saying the earnest prayer of a righteous person lays hold of the great power of God. That's a superpower. And I really wanna challenge you on this. If you chafed a little bit when I said that prayer is a superpower that you have, I just want you to maybe think about the fact that perhaps you've been underestimating this a little bit. Perhaps you haven't been thinking of it as, as powerful as it really is. Suddenly it starts to come into focus why Daniel would be found on his knees when he's threatened. Because it was his superpower, just as it is yours. It produces wonderful results. Now, why is it a superpower? Is it a superpower because of anything that you have in you? No, it's not a superpower because of anything that I have in me. Let me show you why it is. And by the way, for those of you that love Jeremiah 29, 11, it talks about the plans that God has for us. If you just go to one more verse over, Jeremiah twenty nine twelve, it says this, when you pray, and this is God, I will what? I will listen. Why is it a superpower? Because when you pray, you have the promise of the God of the universe saying that he will listen when you pray. That's what makes it powerful. That's what makes it a superpower. That when we pray, God has said he'll listen. How many of you, I'm interested to see whether this is something that you're familiar with or not, but how many of you remember watching maybe like a spy movie or something from the 60s or 70s where there was something like this in the movie, right? I, uh, I didn't see it during the 60s. That was before I discovered America. But um, there was always sort of this red phone that didn't have any buttons. And you knew when you saw the red phone with no buttons that it was not a typical phone. You didn't use this to call your grandma or or call somebody else in town. Because it had no buttons, you knew it was going to a specific place. It was a dedicated line. And usually it was between two very important people. Maybe it was between the White House and some other foreign government. Whatever it was, there were two very important people. And when one person picked up the line, it immediately rang on the other side. And you had two people that were connected to each other that were very important. Here's what I want to introduce you to think about. This is a new way of thinking. But I want you to think about your prayers with God as a dedicated line. That God has made this available to you. That at any time in your life, you can pick up the phone and you can talk to the God of the universe You don't have to talk to his assistant. You don't have to talk to his secretary. You don't have to put up with red tape. You don't have to go, you don't have to set up an appointment. You don't have to make sure that you're following business hours. Anytime that you want, you can pick up this phone and talk to the God of the universe. Why is prayer a superpower? Prayer is a superpower because it is a dedicated line between you and God. Now, I told you, we're not just gonna talk about what it is. Prayer is a superpower. It's a dedicated line between you and God. But I also said, we're gonna talk about why you have it. Why does God give you this direct line? Well, partially because he wants to have a relationship with us. You go all the way through the scripture, all the way back to Genesis, all the way through Revelation, you're gonna find that God's desire and plan for us is to have a relationship with us. It's very important to him. So partially, it's so that we can talk to him anytime about anything, which is one of the reasons why I chafe a bit when I hear people talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline. I struggle with that in the same way that my wife would struggle with it if I called talking to her a marriage discipline. I'm feeling really strong in my marriage disciplines right now because when I come home I talk to my wife for five minutes. My wife's not gonna appreciate that very much. You see, Wendy doesn't want me to talk to her in order to prove that I'm up on my marriage discipline. She doesn't want me to talk to her to feel better about myself in the relationship. She wants to talk to me because she wants to have a relationship with me and she wants to hear what's important to me and I wanna hear what's important to her and we wanna have a two-way dialogue that is informal and ongoing and doesn't stop and we talk whenever it comes to us that there's something important to talk about and that is what God has called us to. God hasn't called us to a discipline, he's called us to a conversation. So there's that. There's the relationship angle, but I want to take a specific I want to take a specific angle on why God gave you this. Cuz you know, you have a purpose, right? You know that God put you on this planet for a reason. You're not just here by accident. God wants you to accomplish something in this world, and he's given you the ability to accomplish great things in this world. And you are his hands and feet on this planet. So he has goals for you in mind, and he has plans for you. And Because if you're a God follower, it's important for you to know that Satan can't mess with your eternity. He can't mess with your relationship with you and God. That's off limits to him. That's off the table. If you're a God follower, the only thing now that Satan can do is try to de-energize you and, and sideline you from the purpose that God has called you to and the mission that God wants you to accomplish on this planet. And I think that sometimes Satan messes with our emotions. Emotions are not inherently bad or good, but I think sometimes Satan can mess with our feelings to really sideline us and to get us sidetracked from what God has called us to do. I just want to talk to you about three feelings that Satan uses to derail our lives and how it relates to this direct line that we've been talking about before. Those three feelings are these I feel alone, I feel lost, I feel like I'm in trouble. See, the thing about it is, there's nothing as de-energizing as feeling alone. The Bible says even in Genesis 2 that human beings, it's not good for us to feel alone, that we're created as social beings and we need other people there. We need to know that somebody has our back. We need to know that somebody's there for us. We need to know that, that somebody cares about us. But in moments sometimes where we, it, it really looks like we're alone, Satan wants to creep up to us and whisper in our ear that nobody cares about you and the only person that's going to be there for you is you. And in that moment, we get de-energized and we get off track. Or the feeling of being lost. Listen, there's nothing worse than knowing that you're not where you're supposed to be, and not knowing how to get to be where you're supposed to be. Or feeling in trouble. My my parents are wonderful people, gracious, kind people. I will say they've softened since having grandkids. <laughs> my, you know, the there was a, uh, an old line about grandparents that they're old people who are trying to get into heaven now. You know, they're not the same people that I grew up with. You know, there may be some truth to that. I don't know, I'm, but. Uh, Uh, But even when I was growing up, my parents were very gracious and kind, but you did know when you were in trouble. Parents have this sort of universal look on their face that they can exercise that when you see that look, you go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. You sort of have that anxiety hanging over your head that you know now you're in trouble, but some of you live with anxiety every day. That cloud that hangs over your head, you're waiting for the other shoe to fall. You think something bad is gonna happen to you and it follows you all the time. I'm lost, I'm alone, I'm in trouble. Those feelings will de-energize us and take us off track. Can I tell you a quick story about a time when I was alone, lost, and in trouble? When I was 17, I got a job working for the local Volvo dealership. I didn't tell them when I got the job a fairly important detail, which was that I had just gotten my driver's license. And not only had I just gotten my driver's license, I had just learned to drive. And what's important for you to know about that is back then there were no rules about having to get in a certain number of driving hours during your learner's permit time. So I literally did next to no driving when I had my learner's permit. My last like two weeks before I got my license, I learned how to drive. I got my license and a few weeks later, I get my job at... um, at the Volvo store. So I was still learning to drive. I had my very first car. It was a Chick Magnet. It was a 1991 Mercury Grand Marquis. I did some damage to that car, let me tell you. There was some stories. Um, But the thing about it was, when I got to the dealership, they didn't know that I was so new to driving, and they kept having me run errands in these really nice cars. At the, at the time, the Volvo dealership was not only selling new and used Volvos, but they were also dealing in sports cars. We had Porsches on the lot, uh, you know, BMW sports cars and so forth. I remember taking a BMW Z3. I'd probably been driving for you know three months. I took a BMW Z3 from one side of town all the way to the other side of town, from one dealership to the other. I mean, that was just patently, ridiculously stupid on their part. They, but um, I, you know, I drove that, and, and I remember driving a Porsche from one side of town to the other. Um, no, no incidents with those, but one day they sent me downtown and they, they wanted me to drop off some title paperwork downtown and they put me in a brand new, at the time it was, a, it was a current model, it was a brand new Volvo S70, candy apple red, I remember this very specifically, candy apple red, leather interior, very nice vehicle. They put me in it, sent me downtown. And I go downtown and I'm driving down there and as I'm driving down the street, I notice that I'm, there's only one lane and there's another car coming directly at me. And this seems odd. And all of a sudden the person starts to honk the horn and they start making a gesture at me that's not very polite and then in between making the gesture they're sort of pointing at the sign I look at the sign and it says one way. And I think, "Well, this is a new experience. I've never driven on a one-way street before." <laughs> and I think the other car got that I'd never driven on a one-way street before. It was a time when I felt lost, I certainly felt alone, I felt like I was in trouble. But I had my cell phone. It was a 90s cell phone, so it looked a lot different than our cell phones today, but I had my cell phone and I punched in the numbers for my dad's cell phone. Now, what you should know about my dad, he's a very busy man and he likes it that way. He's got a lot of stuff going on all the time, but ever since I, I remember ever since I got old enough to have my own phone, any time that I would call my dad, he would pick up, even if he was in a meeting, he would pick up and he'd say, I'm in a meeting, I'll have to call you back in a few minutes, but my dad will not let it go to voicemail if he sees my number ringing or one of the other boys. Um, If it goes to voicemail, I know that his phone is not on his person, it's somewhere else, right? And so I call it, and I get my dad, and he kind of chuckles when I tell him what the situation is, but he gets me turned around, gets me going the right direction, gets me back to the dealership, because I get so lost, I have no internal GPS, and he helped me get back to where I needed to be. And I got the impression, and I remember that it, stu- it stayed with me, that as long as I had my phone and I had my father, are you getting where I'm going here? As long as I had my phone and I had my father, I was actually not going to be alone. I might feel alone, but I wasn't going to be alone. I might feel lost, but I wasn't really going to be lost. And it might feel like I was in trouble, but the truth is I had a way out of trouble. Why did God give you this incredible superpower that you have a direct line to Him anytime that you want to use it. Well, first of all, He wants you to know that you're never alone. You may feel like you're alone. You may be standing in that hospital room with that loved one who no longer can speak to you and you're by yourself and there's nobody to put their arm around you and tell you it's gonna be okay and there's nobody to put their arm around you and tell you that they understand what you're going through and yet even though you may feel alone, the Bible says you're not alone because you have this direct line to God. Check out what the scripture says. The Lord is close to all who call on him. So if you need God where you are, then pick up the phone. Some of us are really wanting a little more God at our workplace. If you want more God at your workplace, you need to pick up the phone. Some of us need God to show up in our homes. Then if you want more God at home, then you need to pick up the phone. If you want more God in your personal development and your path and your direction, you need to pick up the phone because wherever we call on God, he's there. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that wherever you have a direct line to God, you've got access to direction, right? Check this out. This is a familiar verse to many of us. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. So if you feel lost, always keep this in mind. You have the Google street view, but God has the Google earth view. You see what's directly around you, but God sees from above. So he understands how, you, you may feel lost, you may know that you're at point A and you don't know how to get to point B, but God sees it at an elevation and he can project how you need to get from where you are and he can recalculate you even if you've made a mistake. Many of us in this room could attest to that. And finally... With a direct line to God, you have a way out of trouble. And I love this verse in James. It's simple. You could memorize this verse. It would not do you any harm to keep this with you everywhere you go in life, and that is this. Is anybody in trouble? Then let them do what? Let them pray. You in trouble? Then pray. So I have a question for you. Today, walking in this room, are you lost? Are you in trouble? Do you feel alone? That's what this is for. That's what this is for. That's what God put this in your life. But for a lot of us as Christians, there's cobwebs on this. There's a layer of dust an inch thick because we only use it to pray before we eat. But we haven't picked up the phone to say, God, I'm alone and I don't know what to do about it. God, I'm lost and I haven't, got, I haven't figured out what my way is. God, I'm in trouble and I don't know what the way out is. Well, I'm, I, wanna talk, I wanna finish out this talk by this because I'm talking to somebody in this room who would say, you know what, Jonathan, Jonathan, I appreciate the talk, but you know I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm headed in life. I'm not lost right now. I'm, I don't feel like I'm in trouble and you know, I'm not alone. I've got a lot of wonderful people around me, but thanks for the talk. I'll put it in my hip pocket. I'll keep it with me in case I run into those kinds of issues. Hey, we're not done yet. I, I told you we were gonna cover three things. I said we we're gonna talk about what it is, so we know that prayer is the superpower that we have. We, we talked about why we have it, because sometimes in life we're gonna find, us, find ourselves lost, alone, and in trouble. But I told you the third thing we're gonna talk about is what are you supposed to do with this superpower? because you're not just supposed to use it for you. God has given you a task to, this is the task for you to utilize the superpower that he's given you. And I want to show you this verse. This is in Corinthians. uh, The apostle Paul says this, we are Christ's ambassadors. We're Christ's ambassadors. My parents traveled to Israel recently. And and I'll, and I'll say this. I'm, I'm, a little bit of an anxious person. Uh, so whenever people that I love travel out of the country, wherever they're going, I'm a little nervous. I hope that, that everything goes okay and they make it back onto U.S. soil all right. But Israel is a particularly, uh, it's, a, it's a particularly concerning place to go because there is some unrest there. So for me, I was, a little, I was a little concerned about them. But you know the thing that made me feel comforted was that I knew that there was a U.S. embassy there. And when you travel off of U.S. soil, and you're some other place, if you get into any trouble, if you're a US citizen, you can always go to the embassy. You can always go to the US embassy. What makes the embassy so powerful and so wonderful is that the embassy has the authority of the land that it's from, and it also has a direct line to the country that they're from. Here's what I want to encourage you to think about as we close out our time. And I want you to digest this and see whether you think it's true or not. This is just what I'm suggesting You can decide whether you believe this is true or not. But I would say that wherever there is a God follower, there should be an embassy for heaven. Wherever there is a God follower, there should be an embassy for heaven. Because you have the power of God in you, and you have a direct line to God. At that moment that you have those two things, you become an embassy for the living God. So it's not just about whether you're lost, alone, or in trouble. It is now about whether the people around you are lost, alone, and in trouble. God hasn't just called you to use this direct line for yourself. When was the last time there was somebody in your life that you knew was going through a difficult time and you said, well, let's talk to God about it? Or somebody says that they're in trouble and they don't know what to do, well, let's pick up the line, let's talk to God about it. I'll tell you about the person in my life who is most that way. Unfortunately, my father's dad isn't living anymore, my grandpa Hoover isn't living anymore. But if you were around him when he was alive, and my grandpa had been a pastor for a long time. He pastored in Fort Worth for 50 years and then pastored here for for many years before um, he retired. But if you were around my grandpa, you know that this is true about him. And that is that he would ask you what was going on in your life, and you would tell him. And then whatever you told him was going on in your life, he would say, well, let's pray about that. He would put his hand on your shoulder, and he would put his head down, and he would start to pray about it. It really didn't matter what it was. I remember going to see my grandpa at my grandma and grandpa's house. And my grandpa said, so what are you doing next? I said, I'm going to get my teeth cleaning. He said, well, let's pray about your teeth cleaning. You know, you could tell him you were getting ready to go buy a tie. My grandpa would put his hand on your shoulder and say, let's pray about God helps you find the right tie. It worked. I mean, it didn't matter what it was. And it wasn't as it wasn't an invitation to prayer. He didn't say, well, do you think we should pray about that? Or would you like to pray about it? There was no time to object, no time to stall, no time to slow this puppy down. Whenever you told him about something, he would just put his hand on your shoulder and let's pray about that and we're into the prayer. We're all the way into it. There's no stopping that train. Because he prayed about everything, people started to call my grandpa a prayer warrior. They would say that he had a special ability to touch heaven, that he, he was gifted with, the, with an ability to pray. And I think he might have been a little uncomfortable with that way of putting things. Because my grandpa believed he was a God follower like any other God follower. The difference was that my grandpa understood that he had this. I think he was kind of surprised that other God followers around him didn't understand how powerful it was. I think he was kind of surprised at how easily it's underestimated. But he really understood this superpower So my grandpa just figured that whatever it was he encountered in his life, well, that was a reason to pick up the line and talk to God about it. Why would we not if you have this at your disposal? How embarrassing would it be to have a superpower and never use it? So I'm asking you, how thick is the dust on your dedicated line to God? How thick are the cobwebs? And how much would your life change if today... You recognize the power that God has invested in you, and you started reaching out to heaven, not just when you feel lost, alone, or in trouble, but about the people around you who are lost, alone, and in trouble, because this is my conjecture to you. I believe it wouldn't just change your world. I believe it would change the world of everybody around you. You could touch heaven. You have that power. You just gotta use it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, for the fact that you love us and for the fact that you've given us this power I pray that you would help us to never underestimate it, but to always reach out to you about all things in our life. Help us to trust you and to know that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week.